This is a spoiler warning. We are going to spoil the episodes discussed in the show. It's also a free-flowing discussion. We're going to spoil pretty much most of the show aired to date. Uh, We'll do our best not to spoil any of the big finish range other than the episode that's discussed, but you are warned. Problem is, Perry, we are faced with a conundrum wrapped up in a dilemma. Hello and welcome to The Twin Dilemma, a Doctor Who fan podcast. In each episode, we will discuss one episode of classic Doctor Who, one episode of New Who. We'll compare and contrast them and tell you definitively, 100%, without a doubt, no room for argument, which one is the best. Those are the twins. That's The Dilemma. I'm your co-host, Edward Grove. And I am Fenric Lamar. And today we're talking about beginnings. So why not start at the very beginning Our first episode, our classic episode today, is An Unearthly Child. This was the very first episode of Doctor Who broadcast on November 23rd, 1963. It was written by Anthony Coburn. It's a four-part story that takes place in two time periods. We're going to mostly focus on the first part. It follows two teachers at Coal Hill School, Ian Chesterton and Barbara Wright. They're discussing a student of theirs, Susan Foreman, who seems a bit peculiar. They follow her back to where she lives, which is a junkyard where they meet the doctor. You thought you saw a young girl into the yard? You imagine you heard her voice? You believe she might be in there? It's not very substantial, is it? But why (laughs) won't you help us? I'm not hindering you. If you both want to make fools of yourselves, I suggest you do what you said you'd do. Go and find a policeman. The doctor decides to pull them away in time, afraid of them giving away his secrets, and thus begins an adventure that would last for another 54 years? Are we on 54? You can't be on 54. 52? 52. <laughs> Just pulling numbers out of your ass. From there, they go on an adventure with cavemen. We will broach that subject, but we won't go into it uh, into too much detail. Sweet. So we dig, we'll dig in? Let's do it. All right. <clears throat> An Unearthly Child, talking about Doctor Who. It's a show that uh, probably more than any other show in television history has had so many opportunities to reinvent itself. Uh, behind the scenes, in front of this, uh, the camera, with different actors and different circumstances and different mediums. And it's interesting to go back and look at what's the first way they decided to introduce this premise. I think the way they did it is probably the single most interesting part of An Unearthly Child. Ian and Barbara feeling out this mystery and heading to this junkyard, and you have the Doctor as this frightening character. It foretells what would become one of Doctor Who's strong suits for the entirety of the show, which is that even though it's a science fiction show, horror is one of its strongest veins. And in this case, it's the doctor doing something creepy and it's just being himself and also having bad teeth. It was really surprising going back and watching this episode because I caught on to something which I never really thought of before, which is that definitively the antagonist of this episode is the doctor. Mm. Like, there's no, there's no sign of the doctor as we know him now. He's not the... You know, I would never carry a gun. I'm not going to let these people die. He's not that person. He is a person who kidnaps people because they know something about him, and he leads them into deathly situations. Yeah, there is that that moment in particular in the episode where the doctor locks them in into the TARDIS and isn't going to let them out, and he's not even being 
defensive about it he has this absolutely malicious smile on his face he's like i've got them (laughs) (laughs) they're mine now you can't put another incarnation of the doctor in that position have you know david tennant be like yes i've locked these humans in this cage now and i own them your arrogance is nearly as great as your ignorance you open the door (laughs) open the door (laughs) and it's it's weird because you can actually you can see the same effect that he's having on susan who knows him who has known him for her entire life and she's still freaked out at him closing the doors on these people and just being like nope we're gone i also found it interesting because there's a lot of debate you know about what was their intention with the character of Doctor Who as he was credited at the time at the inception of the show? Was he supposed to be a human or not? And so I was paying a lot of attention to the dialogue about what his backstory was. And they, you know, Susan says specifically, not, I'm not from this century, I'm from another world. I think I went into it expecting a vaguer creative voice behind it, but it actually felt like, no, the, the person who's writing this really does have a strong grasp on, if not the like expositional details of his background, the exact tone they want. I was doing the exact same thing because I think it was five or six months ago. Stephen Moffat, the current showrunner, put this kind of task online and saying like, when was the first time that the doctor says he's an alien? And so I was watching this episode like, is there a moment where that's said? There's definitively a part where I believe what her exact words are, our planet when he finally pulls the lever she is like screaming at him yeah i think that the time travel itself is an accident right susan like runs into the console or whatever but it's like she he locks them in and then susan's like ah, and then runs into the console and then he's like what have you done and then there's like a five minute it's very strange <laughs> time travel is never depicted like this again whirling transition shots I think it was just like an excuse because when they made the opening title sequence, they thought it was brilliant. And they were <laughs> like, well, we got to put this in the episode somewhere for two minutes straight. Yeah. And it's weird that they were both like passed out. Yeah. Time travel just like knocked them out yep. completely. Yeah. I guess uh, headcanon for that sequence when I was watching it was just that we are watching a doctor who knows the least about the TARDIS from any time we've ever seen him. He stole a TARDIS and by sheer luck, he was even able to get it off Gallifrey because he has no idea what he's doing with it. So he must have pulled some kind of lever that, you know, they they could have died. Knowing what we know now about the setup of the show, their dialogue is very explicit. They aspire to get back to their people, but are forcibly separated from them. But what we know now is that he's had run away from his people at that point. I wonder if in the 50th anniversary, when Stephen Moffat wrote the line, I'm going where I've always been going, home the long way round, I wonder if that was kind of his way of bridging that gap. I think so, because, you know, you look at the first Doctor's time and that, you know, I will go back line is sort of like his whole mantra, but less about the lengthy mythology of the show more about the episode itself uh, i wrote down somebody looks directly in the lens right at the beginning of the episode doctor who is looking in the lens like seven times <laughs> and it's like moments when he's talking to someone in the room you know he'll be talking to ian who's behind him and he's like nope i'm talking to the audience right now yeah his teeth were bad hartnell was a uh, known for little senile moments like that he was known for bad teeth to me watching that episode 
I, I actually, I noticed that Susan's teeth are not very good. I didn't notice that. It snuck by me. And it was disappointing because she's always been like one of the cutest companions to me <laughs> in, a, in a, like a weird elfish way. Mm-hmm. Like she looks like if she had been born in the 2000s, she should have played an elf in Lord of the Rings. I could see that. But she's got bad teeth. Mm. So. I thought that Susan was the least secretive person to ever exist on planet Earth. And it, it's funny to think about if she had the slightest bit of cunning, the whole show would have never happened. <laughs> if she could keep one secretive future science fact to herself, the whole arc of Doctor Who's life would have never happened. The, the entire first half of the episode is literally just like flashbacks to her giving herself away. You know, you, you, know, you think of how studio-bound the show typically was, particularly later on, and you don't think of a show having a ton of weird POV shots and crazy transition effects. It's a pretty expressively directed episode. This is more in the the later episodes of the story that take place in the caveman times. There's a, a, a rather important sequence where the, the doctor encounters this caveman who I believe has broken his leg and he just picks up a rock and is just ready to crush his head. And Ian's like, no, you can't do that. And I've always personally felt like that scene is like the birth of the doctor. Because before that, he was just a guy who even just didn't like his name. So he's just like, I chose the doctor because whatever. But it was meaningless to him until that moment when he kind of realized he was able to be reined in and be taught to like, this is what humanity is. You look at the arc of the doctor's character overall, and it is so much about it starts off as a time lord and sort of like has this human influence on him over time. Uh, to the point where he becomes half-human suddenly in his eighth incarnation. But you can really see it in the first Doctor, probably more than any other, just because his starting point is so incredibly cruel and weird in the first episode where he's literally frightening. Like, what was his plan with Ian and Barbara? Just kick him out somewhere? He was definitely ditching them. Yeah. It was interesting to know that he apparently hates the 60s. He says, I particularly dislike this time period. You think it was women's lib? Yeah, definitely. Just couldn't couldn't deal with it. I mean, he, he's got that uppity granddaughter. <laughs> That's enough. What do you think in in an unearthly child itself? What was the thing that you most enjoyed? How unique it feels. It doesn't feel like an episode of any other show I've ever seen. Maybe that's just because it's a sign of the times, but it almost feels like they kind of knew that they were making something huge where the first episode itself didn't need to have a monster or some problem to be solved. It just needed you to know who these characters were and why they're being pulled off on this great adventure. I think that's part of why it's so worth talking about as a separate entity from the rest of the caveman story is because it feels so unlike the rest of anything else within Doctor Who. It is uh, an imperfect episode of Doctor Who. The first half of the episode is almost devoid of story. You could make an argument for that. But I think the thing that I enjoyed the most that I got the most genuine attachment to out of it was the way that they developed Ian and Barbara's characters. You know, it would have been very easy to have them just literally be, oh, we're so worried about poor Susan. She lives in a junkyard. Uh, But they didn't do that. They didn't have them just overly caring or overly flat. They were sort of slightly bitter, slightly measured. They felt very human. That's interesting because actually like one of the big criticisms that I think is fair in a lot of parts of it is that classic who the companions tend to be a lot flatter. You don't see their lives as much. Yeah. 
Whereas and right off the bat, Ian and Barbara are both like these great companions. And throughout their run, they have a consistent arc. Yeah, and not not to deviate too far from an unearthly child, but like I, I fucking hate Ben and Polly. <laughs> there are, there are <laughs> a handful of classic companions where I think that's a tremendously accurate uh, criticism. Uh, and maybe that's part of why I appreciated it so much that for them to feel so organic. I think like the, the moment in particular was Ian fessing up to the non-charitable desire to figure out what was going on with Susan. They both were in it for more than just a sort of paternal teacherly instinct because there was no story necessity for that. Everything was there drama-wise to have them go to the junkyard, but they took an extra step to like have them feel like people. It was a big wall on one side, houses on the other, and nothing in the middle. And this nothing in the middle is number 76 Totters Lane. Hmm. That's a bit of a mystery. Well, there must be a simple answer somewhere. Well, what? Well, we'll have to find out for ourselves, won't we? Thank you for the week. And here's some trivia about An Unearthly Child. Did you know that the pilot was completely reshot because apparently the first taping of it was a complete disaster? Did you know that? Did I know that? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Let me see if I can think of a stumper. Oh, here's an interesting thing. Carol Ann Ford was promised that her character, Susan, would have psychic abilities that would give her interesting things to do. This is actually the reason why she ended up leaving the show in season two, because those never happened. Instead, all she did was break her ankle over and over and over. That's, that's very interesting. I didn't know that. Maybe her ankle regenerates. <laughs> in the episode, Susan makes a reference to the UK not being on the decimal system yet, which is actually true because they would change to the decimal system seven years later. Whether or not they chose to do this because of Doctor Who is unknown. I think we can almost certainly say the answer is yes. At one point, Susan is seen listening to the radio, listening to a band called John Smith and the Common Men. This is interesting for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because John Smith would eventually become the Doctor's moniker. And secondly, because... The Doctor would eventually meet and play with the Common Men in a Big Finish audio called 1963 Fanfare for the Common Men. Check it out, it's good. If you would like to learn more about the production of An Unearthly Child, you can check out the movie An Adventure in Space and Time, which was created for the 50th anniversary. It was written by Mark Gatiss and stars David Bradley as William Hartnell, and it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a pretty good movie. Can I ask you something only semi-related? Okay. Do you think that Ian and Barbara were banging? That is a very important question. Um, they just, they act way too... too they're very comfortable they're with each other. They're very comfortable with each other. And they're hanging out in that room. Oh, you know, I was going to say, I don't know, Ian's not really paying much attention to her, but that, that sort of works in, in the favor of the banging theory. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's, there's so little sexual tension between them. Maybe it's because of the banging. Everything is because of the banging. <laughs> All right. Well, you want to talk about Rose? I want to talk about banging. Banging Rose? <laughs> no, let's move on to Rose. Right. Why'd you want to start? Um, the inside's bigger than the outside? Yes. It's alien. Yeah. Are you alien? Yes. All right. Yeah. Our new Who episode for today is the very first episode of 
2005 Doctor Who revival mounted by Russell T. Davies and Julie Gardner entitled Rose. The story follows Rose as she crosses paths with the Autons, followed shortly by the Ninth Doctor, leading her on an adventure that would change her life forever. First of all, just straight off the top, what did you think about Rose visiting it again? Rose is the very first episode of Doctor Who I had ever seen. And there are scenes that should have turned me off completely. Specifically, Auton Mickey. I joke about the pizza scene constantly because it's just so hokey. Oof. What are we gonna do tonight? I fancy pizza. 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 Or Chinese. Pizza. But there's just something about it that I was able to get past those scenes and just know that there was better stuff coming. I have a note down. Talk about Plastic Mickey. <laughs> because I believe in the past you have claimed to like Plastic Mickey. I, I, I want to hold your feet to the fire on this. You, you have said in the past you like Plastic Mickey. That is true. <laughs> it has been nine years so over that time plastic mickey has become like this mascot to me (laughs) like an avatar of all the the dumb stuff that's in russell t davies years (laughs) that has this kind of likability to it so yeah i like plastic mickey when i first watched plastic mickey i was like what is this shit (laughs) i've come to think rose is kind of the trial by fire method you know if you're gonna start with rose and you like rose then you're in baby like you're gonna love doctor who uh, because Rose, I, I love Rose. I unabashedly love Rose. I think every time I watch it, I like it more. But I think there are at least three moments in Rose that if somebody said, I couldn't get over this moment, I would say, well, I'm sorry to hear it, but I get it. I have told you many times, Rose actually features my least favorite Russell T. Davies joke of the entire show. I have a note written down to talk about this as well. <laughs> so this is the joke where... They are looking for the Nestine consciousness. The Ninth Doctor is standing in front of the London Eye, and he says, we're looking for, you know, a dish, a satellite dish. It's going to be round and big and metal. And, you know, Rose just kind of flicks her face. Like, look over there. And he's like, what? And he looks at it. What? That is just the worst joke to me. I just, I can't stand that joke. I feel like this is going to be a a recurring segment on this show where I just call you out on your bullshit because... (laughs) A second ago, you're talking about liking Plastic Mickey. And then there's literally a moment in this where the doctor shakes a bottle of champagne, holds it at crotch level, and then blows the cork load into a guy's head. <laughs> you know, I've never put together the, the penis thing there. You know what's weird? This was actually the first viewing where I noticed he literally holds it directly at dick height and angle. <laughs> so here's the question is... In the script, does Russell T. Davies specifically say, you need to hold this at dick level? I bet he wrote, Christopher Eccleston ejaculates champagne cork. <laughs> but yeah, I think that the London Eye joke, it's a bit hokey, but it's so patently inoffensive compared to like so many other moments in the very same episode. A garbage pail eats a man and burps afterward. But here's, here's the difference. In the way that Plastic Mickey has become this kind of mascot to me of likable dumbness, the London Eye, I've just, I've never gotten over. <laughs> Every time I watch the episode, I know it's coming. And then I remember that it, like, I'm at that scene and I'm already shaking my head. All right, you're doing such a poor job of defending yourself. I'm going to defend you for you, which is what I think is bad about the London Eye joke. It makes the doctor 
dumb in the butt of the joke for no reason. And there are there are ways to make the doctor dumb in the butt of the joke that make a lot of sense. They do it with Capaldi all the time where he's dumb about people or something like that, where it's dumb in a way that makes sense. But they make the doctor dumb for that joke in a way in which the doctor is never dumb ever again in series one. So you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. <Edward. laughs> something that I thought was a very interesting... Uh, that I never caught on to before, time travel plays almost no part in the episode. The only time where time travel is specifically mentioned, even though it is probably the most fundamental part of the show, is the very last line where he just says, have I mentioned the TARDIS also travels in time? I've never thought about that. I wonder, if is that a deliberate sort of cheeky line by Russell T. Davies? That he tells this whole contemporary story setting up the show. And did I mention this show has so much left to do? And that makes a lot of sense because actually he knew that the very next thing you're going to see is the next time, which is, you know, what? The end of the Earth. A hundred thousand years in the future. Yeah. Yeah. That is the kind of thing he was very, very aware of. He was very focused on like what the broadcast was going to be like. Um, He's not like I think Stephen Moffat thinks more about the DVD set. You know, like, what is the what is it going to be like on the shelf years later? I would say that that's definitely true and that Russell D. Davies did not worry himself too much about what things would be dated. <laughs> Speaking of, in the segment where Rose is investigating the Doctor, that segment is so goddamn 90s, I can't believe it. The, like, searchwise.com oh fake God. search engine. <laughs> and, like, the guy's wife making a joke about, there's a girl on the internet? <laughs> In that same scene, as she's inside Clive's house, outside is when Mickey is being swallowed by the trash can. Mm -hmm. For some reason, every time I notice, whoever lit that scene was just the worst person and should be (laughs) fired. It's shot like a dream sequence in the 90s. But like one of those dreams where like you're you're missing your romantic partner. That should be when I say there are three things at least that could turn somebody off of Rose. I should say four and the cinematography should be one. But something that's really great about that is that even now I can watch it and it's almost like it's a second era of classic Doctor Who. And I can go back and watch a classic Christopher Eccleston episode that feels good and nostalgic. Oh, I thought one thing that was very interesting, you're setting up a companion, right? You have to set up what their ordinary life is before they join the Doctor. Rusty Davies didn't make Rose miserable. He didn't make her miserable. He didn't make her way smarter than everybody around her. She's seeming having a pretty good time and pretty okay with it. And then the contact with the Doctor sort of awakens her to what more she can do with her life and more that she can do with herself. The last shot is just her just running at the TARDIS, and she's got this look on her face where you know, and now she suddenly knows as well. Even though her life wasn't missing anything as far as she knew, she's now open to this new grand thing that she could never say no to. Even though, I mean, I guess in the episode, she says no to it. So maybe I'm Yeah, wrong. you dummy. <laughs> <laughs> Mickey is a dick. Watching this episode, yeah. he's not he's like an awful boyfriend. There's there's one line in particular. If you really pay attention to it and you extrapolate it to what it actually means, you're like, "Oh fuck, Mickey's a scumbag." Coffee. Yeah, I mean if you wash the mug, and I don't mean rinse. I mean wash. Can I use your computer? Yeah. Any excuse to get in the bedroom. Don't read my emails. Which is like, "Oh fuck, he's like cheating on her in his emails." <laughs> He could be doing something else. 
Yeah, but it's, what is he cheating on his taxes and his emails? <laughs> and he doesn't want her to know? Yeah. Because <laughs> she works for the IRS or whatever like, they have over there? It's Russell T. Davies. The implication, he's, he's emailing other girls, definitely. Yeah, I guess so. He's just a, generally just not a good person. Like, she almost blows up and he's like, well, let's go watch a soccer game. Yeah. And at the end, when he saves her life, basically, she's like, he's literally cowering at her feet. Circling back a bit to the idea of sort of the, the episode as being this, like, awakening for Rose, I want to talk about a moment that's, from my very first viewing, been my favorite moment in the episode. It's like when you're a kid. The first time they tell you that the world's turning and you just can't quite believe it because everything looks like it's standing still. I can feel it. The turn of the earth. The ground beneath our feet is spinning at a thousand miles an hour and the entire planet is hurtling around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour and I can feel it. We're falling through space, you and me clinging to the skin of this tiny little world and if we let go that's who i am now forget me rose tyler i've always been sort of mesmerized by that but i never actually put together what was happening in that moment and it's an, an implicit promise of what becomes explicit later which is that he's basically saying to her i am somebody who can give you an awareness of the universe that is currently unimaginable to you. And it's done in this way that is so artful and so perfect. Uh, and I just think it's, uh, it's great. So let's talk about the monster. What do you think about nesting consciousness and the choice of using the Autons, which were a classic enemy that hadn't been seen since the third Doctor? Do you think anybody could have been pushed away by that? I will say I have a friend who I tried to get to watch Doctor Who and who turned it off the second a mannequin moved. <laughs> I, so I think the Autons are one of the main liabilities of Rose. At the same time, I think one of the most successful things about the episode is it manages to show you what a Monster of the Week episode could look like while also kind of feeling like the monsters aren't the important part of the story. And it's like you could almost take out all of the Auton scenes and it will be a boringer episode, but it will still be like the same episode at its heart. I will take this a step further. You can almost take the doctor out of this episode. All of the strengths of the episode really are about his depiction of Rose, his depiction of her human life. When you see how he writes the doctor, you can almost see in each scene, Russell T. Davies trying on almost a new voice for the doctor in different scenes. I, I don't think it's unsuccessful. I think the Doctor is still great. I think there are a number of really fantastic, not intentional fantastic lines in the episode. But I think what makes the episode succeed is that even though he's not 100% there yet, he knows how to write for Rose. I've never personally thought of all those different sequences as being different facets of the Doctor. I've always thought that he almost nailed the Doctor immediately because I remember the first time I watched this, I was like, okay, this show is weird. There's plastic Mickeys, but that guy is cool. And I want to know more about that guy. Speaking of Russell T. Davies, let's talk about his treatment of Clive. I thought the way that he elected to have Clive be killed by the Autons was just perfect Russell T. Davies in a nutshell. He creates this character that really didn't need to appear in the episode again. He elected not only to bring him back, not only to kill him, but to make sure first 
he gets this moment of weird lifetime validation. You know what I mean? That like yeah. all of his weird theories were right, but you're dead. <laughs> and he does. He does warn the doctor brings death when he, the doctor confronts the Nestian consciousness. I think it's almost inarguably the weakest part of the episode. That's definitely fair. I mean, it's got some of the dodgiest visual effects, but I think it's also just, just sort of the sh- the show giving up to the idea of like, well, we've got to have a big finish, you know, or a small finish. Something I think is odd about that is the visual effects have permanently dented the autons, because that's the first time we ever actually see a nesting consciousness. Every other time, it's just autons, you know, serving this kind of force somewhere in the galaxy, right? But now we see this CGI plastic face thing that just looks awful. And now you can't disassociate autons with that. And he has a vial of a thing that's just called anti-plastic. It almost feels like disinterest on the part of the writer in resolving that aspect of the story. It's like, oh, what's, what's bad for plastic? Anti-plastic? All right, throw it in there. <laughs> and he does. And then what can she do as swing on a chain? <laughs> it's one of the doctor's worst plans because to just he, walk in and throw anti-plastic to just kind of walk in there and then just get grabbed <laughs> and then the TARDIS is just there they just kind of jacked it somehow well that's not his fault well what did he do what did he park it by the Nestian consciousness how did they get it any if he parked it near any department store you know they got free reign of that bitch so you think they just carried it how else would it get there I, I, just, I guess I never just thought, I kind of assumed mannequins couldn't carry a TARDIS. I mean, it definitely would have looked weird <laughs> if, like, anybody came outside and just saw two mannequins just holding this giant wooden <laughs> blue box. box. With a dimension inside of it. Uh, I think it's a real shame that so few people do actually watch Rose as their first Doctor Who episode anymore. Because you think about that moment where Rose enters a TARDIS, we don't see it, she runs back out circles around it and goes inside and there's a journey there for a new viewer that's just wonderful and purely visual and almost no one is really going to go on anymore because everybody's starting with the 11th hour or something like that a lot of fans like to like ask the question of where were these adventures that clive is referencing where the the ninth doctor is traveling by himself and so their justification for it is at the end he first makes the pitch to rose and says do you want to travel with me and she says no and he disappears and then comes back like a second later and says by the way did i mention it travels in time and so their justification is he left went off and did a bunch of adventures and then was like oh by the way i should go back and get rose like what he, did he get bored or just like, did he run out of Just kind of snapped women? his fingers one day like, oh shit. No, I, I hate that theory. And there's so many reasonable explanations. Like we, we know for a fact that the doctor does adventures with companions in the TARDIS when they're not coming out of the TARDIS. There could have been all those adventures with her just not stepping outside or she could have just been there. Somebody had to take the photograph. <laughs> so I don't care about that theory at all, but... I do want to say that I absolutely love the moment where she says no and the TARDIS leaves and comes back. It's something that you don't see in any other companion, you know, meet cute moment. And th- those are great. So like for Rose, it was like that moment of him coming back. And, you know, Martha Jones, it's like him showing her his tie when he's doing time travel magic. That's a cool moment. 
Wrestling Davies was good at those. Yes. Boy, those are, those are really good moments. One one more thing about that. How great is Eccleston's performance when she says no? He he looks destroyed in the most subtle way. And it makes so much sense for the context of the character because it probably is the first legit companion that he's had since the time war. We know that he's fresh off his regeneration, so we know he was used to be the war doctor and has now embraced the title again. He is the doctor for the first time. Maybe that's his first day being the doctor in hundreds of years, and he finally has a companion and she says no. The fact that that still makes sense in the grand scheme after so much time fuckery even after showrunners have changed hands and the show has essentially been retconned and you still look at that moment and it's like oh it, you know a new level of richness has been added to it now that we've talked about rose here's a few pieces of trivia the book the doctor speed reads is the lovely bones by alice Siebold. so that's the book where he reads and says huh sad ending which it's really a sad whole fucking thing if you've read the book it starts with her getting murdered so Maybe he only read the ending. Yeah, the ending, if anything, is the family's starting to heal. So, weird. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't like that. He's like, huh, sad, they're moving on. Maybe I'll that, take guess, this girl's daughter away. I guess that is sad. I wonder, what it, does that mean anything? Probably not. <laughs> anyway, so the original transmission had a weird error that caused a Graham Norton voiceover to appear during the creepy sequence at the beginning while Rose is skulking through the basement uh, with the Autons. And Julie Gardner had to call the BBC frantically to have them cut it off. I, I wish there was audio of that phone call. <laughs> I wonder who the person you call is. And they've got to eat shit for like a week about it. Oh, no, they're fired. Yeah. <laughs> they're, not, they're not working there. Well, speaking of, Rose was leaked uh, at least a week prior to the release, I believe, by a Canadian company, and the person who leaked it to that Canadian company was fired. So at least one firing happened. Hopefully everyone was fired. Edgar Wright was offered to direct Rose. What? Yes, but he, he was still busy uh, finishing up Shaun of the Dead, so he couldn't take the job. Fuck that. Take a break, man. You can really see that like he would have fit the style perfectly. And it would have been great. The original title was Rose Meets the Doctor. Great decision to cut that down. They wanted an all-in-one CGI shot of the camera seamlessly moving into the TARDIS, but it was too expensive, a feat that would not be accomplished until 2012 in The Snowmen. All right, I think it's time to move on. Time to determine which of these two stories is the best. Now, you have got to make a choice. So let me ask you, Edward Grove. Which episode do you like the most? And uh, near the Rose. You, you're going with Rose. I'm going with Rose. <laughs> That's unfortunate because I also want to go with Rose. But somebody's got to argue for an unearthly child. That is, I believe, the premise of this podcast. We could just end it here. Okay, goodbye. Good night, goodbye, good night folks. All right. Uh, no. It's like, oh, the podcast continues. Oh, shit. We're sorry. So what we're going to do... We're going to flip a coin, and then whoever loses, we're going to say loses, has to defend an unearthly child. <laughs> yes, they will have to champion an unearthly child. All right. Are you going to go with heads or tails? Uh, I will go with 
heads. Wait, wait, hold on. Are you catching it and then flipping it onto the back of your hand? I'm not good at catching. I could, <laughs> okay, so what do you I, do? I, I, I now run a Doctor Who fan <laughs> podcast. I don't, I don't do catching. So you're going to let it drop to the ground? Uh, if I catch it, I will flip it. All right, well, then I, I uh, fucking tails. If I drop it, we'll just, it, it's as it lies. All right, tails. Tails. <laughs> Guess what, folks? <laughs> it, went, it went a lot further than I expected. True to his nature. This man did not catch that coin. Shenanigans. How do we even know what it was at this point? It's heads. Oh, bullshit. Who knows what it was? <laughs> so, for tonight's dilemma, representing an unearthly child, Edward Grove. So I have to go first. <laughs> it went first chronologically. Uh, oh, thanks. Give me a minute to collect my thoughts. So I have to argue for it being specifically better than Rose. So maybe my best option here is to attack my beloved Rose. <laughs> so uh, I'm gonna let's let's focus on how just unabashedly racist Rose is <laughs> in its uh, depiction of plastic. <laughs> <laughs> I you thought I was gonna say Mickey or I, some I shit. I was, yeah. and then I was gonna say, "What's there to say?" <laughs> so I mean, an unearthly child is truly unique in Doctor Who. It had absolutely zero to start from. Uh, <laughs> Keep on going. Absolutely better than Rose. You got this. You know they're they're both dated in their own ways. It's it's a, I think it's harder to overcome the things that are dated about an unearthly child because you're watching something that the pacing is slower, the dialogue is a little bit more staid and theatrical. But it's still the genesis of the show. It's the creation of all of the things that Rose had to use to recreate. Uh, the characters are good. <laughs> Let's hear you defend your precious Rose. Rose is the beginning of one of the biggest shows on the planet. It's fun. It's exciting. It's got great moments. It established Russell T. Davies as being a fantastic Doctor Who writer. What's 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 there to say, man? But what about that London Eye joke? That sure is shit, huh? Yes. <laughs> I win. <laughs> <laughs> the London Eye joke is just plain trash. But he gets past it and he starts to recognize All right, I'll say this. By series 2, he starts to recognize the jokes of his that people just will never be on board with. I'll tell you what's not in an unearthly child. A trash can doesn't eat anybody and burp afterward in an unearthly child. Because that requires a plot. <laughs> I feel like, it's funny because I, I felt like as I was saying that, I was opening myself up to that specific attack. I'm just now seeing the problem with this format is that it's just making me attack an episode that I love. <laughs> yeah. And I guess you're doing the same thing. Well, I, I was thinking I could do that. And then I was like, but I really like Rose. And I know a couple things I could say bad about Rose, right? Like a lot of people say Jackie is a really flat one dimensional character in Rose. And I don't think that's really fair. I think Mickey, it's a little bit harsher because when they literally have Mickey holding onto her waist at the end and they have Rose's last line to Mickey be thanks. And he says, for what? And she says, exactly. That is a level of callousness towards Mickey that was unnecessary. There's no reason to create a character 
in her life to just shit all over for the episode over and over again. Particularly not when, like, he gets kidnapped by aliens. Like, the episode is mean to Mickey. So I think that's a fair criticism against Rose. But I disagree with people saying that Jackie is overly one-dimensional. They don't understand what her role is in the episode. She's not the protagonist of that story. She's an ancillary character, and she's perfect in it. She's hilarious. She just needs to kind of illuminate more aspects of Rose's character, and she does that really well. So it's like, I don't want to dig into the things of Rose that are imperfect because I really do like Rose. So I'm trying to think about things in Unearthly Child that are better than Rose, but it's just really tough because it's so old. (laughs) So I'm going to dig in for just one thing. Okay. The very first scene of An Unearthly Child is this iconic shot of a policeman walking around in the mist and he finds I am Foreman's lot. Why? What does that have to do with the story? And the weirdest thing is they could have easily made that be the scene where Barbara finds the lot. Because later in the story, Barbara says, so I followed her to this lot. Do you want to come with me to go check out this weird lot that apparently she lives in? I like that opening because it's it's atmospheric. I do think it goes along with the fact that the, the whole episode is a lot more expressive directorially but i like that shot i like that it goes through the the entrance and goes into showing the tardis because it is inviting you into the world and setting up this mystery in an unearthly child the unearthly child is the worst character in the episode whereas in rose she's great and she is the thing that you want to follow on the story whereas with susan she's just kind of weird and she trips over things, and I, I, that, I guess that's her character arc, because <laughs> she just continues to be that way. All right, here's two ways in which an unearthly child is better than Rose, specifically the first episode, not going into all the caveman shit. One is the title. I think Rose is a fine title. I think an unearthly child is an intriguing and slightly beautiful title. I'm going to go ahead and agree with you. I like that. Slam. Gotcha. You're dead now. Uh And I think the second is economy. Rose is a a great episode, but it is an episode that goes a million places and creates a million different elements and does a million different things. But I think there is something admirable about what an unearthly child is able to do with a very limited cast, a very limited number of set pieces, and a very limited number of options, essentially. They go basically two places in that episode. And with what's a very, very contained story, they create a lot of mystery and intrigue. And there's something to be said about the quality of writing that it takes to create that. I think that's one thing you can say An Unearthly Child does do a little bit better than Rose, is that the mystery component in An Unearthly Child, I think, has a stronger pull because it feels like there's more of an actual danger element. And that's because of the lack of, like, I think when you incorporate the amount of campiness that Russell T. Davies incorporates, then when Clive says death comes with the doctor, it's harder for it to feel dangerous when a guy gets eaten by a trash can and burps afterwards versus when these teachers are locked in the TARDIS with an old man that you really don't know his motivations. Yes, but uh, where an unearthly child creates unease, I would say, it fails to... to fulfill the idea of the adventure, which right off of the posters for An Unearthly Child, the slogan is an adventure in space and time. There's no adventure in An Unearthly Child. It's just... There's very little space and time either. (laughs) That's true. It's just scary. It's, It's 
a, a half hour of some kids getting into a guy's rape van, you know? It's it's scary and weird and things will get better, hopefully. Is this just became a life advice podcast. <laughs> I, I do think no I mean I mean in the show like yeah. hopefully the next episode will be more adventurous whereas in Rose when she's running at the TARDIS you're like oh yeah she's about to do some cool stuff I want to see what happens ne- next week I'll agree with you Rose definitely does adventure better but I think an unearthly child does actually do scary better than Rose does because I think Rose reaches for scary a few times and isn't ever actually scary. It just kind of puts on the mode of scariness because it's what suits the story at that time. But I think an unearthly child comes a lot closer to an actual uneasy, scary vibe because you actually feel like characters are at risk more. That's that's fair in a personal way. I'll take it. <laughs> in a in a personal way. But I don't I don't think you're scared that they're gonna be killed by alien beasts. You're more just like creeped out yeah it's more a vague sense of like this is creepy and weird and what's happening to these people and who's this guy yeah i win (laughs) it's hard to say anything other than rose wins (laughs) victory something i would like to point out maybe an homage that i had never noticed before is in rose when she goes to Clive's place and he's showing her all this evidence of the doctor throughout history, the first one he shows her is the JFK assassination. And I'm wondering if that's intentional on Russell T. Davies' part because An Unearthly Child was famously broadcast the day after the JFK assassination. I think it definitely was, and I think it was a bad idea. You don't like that? No, I think a lot of people are left wondering if he killed JFK. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. What if he could have stopped? Well, that's what I, what's weird about it. The next one he goes to, I believe in order, is a family that he seemingly warned not to go on the Titanic. And so he didn't stop the assassination of JFK, but he did save four randos from getting on the Titanic. Yeah, that is weird. I was going to make a comment about how like that goes along with, in series one, there's the episode Father's Day. So like it's only like five episodes away where they get to the idea of history is set or at least specific parts of it or whatever the writers want to be set is set but then yeah immediately when they contradict themselves with that picture of the the little titanic kids i'll tell you where that doesn't happen it's called an unearthly child (laughs) (laughs) and it's the greatest episode of doctor who of all time eat it trying to think of any contradictions in an unearthly child there's not enough story for there to be contradictions (laughs) oh okay here's one we never they never specifically say that she's not from earth bam you think she's the unearthly child i guess so i thought i always thought he was the unearthly child he's not a child he's old as fuck but he is he's the youngest he'll ever be on the show (laughs) (laughs) we didn't know that at the time that's not true I didn't even have to refute you on that one. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, yeah, Rose wins. I lose. Congratulations, Fenric. Thank you. I will accept my victory with great humility and muy, muy... Are you getting this? That's all right. We'll just, <laughs> we'll just pass it. We'll just go. It was uh, Jar Jar Binks. I was quoting Jar Jar Binks. I thought that was just Spanish. Yeah. For some reason, Jar Jar Binks just starts speaking Spanish at one point. 
you've now entered a Star Wars podcast. <laughs> we just focus on the shitty parts of Star Wars. All right, who's worse, Jar Jar Binks or the Slitheen? Um, uh, I'm trying to think because like a lot of kids actually really like Jar Jar, and I I don't know. I was gonna say if you took away the farting, I wouldn't mind the Slitheen that much, but that's not even true. If you took the Slitheens out of the Slitheen episodes, I really like those episodes, but I still don't like their designs. Yeah, they're ugly. I hate I hate whenever they cut to like a moment where they're supposed to be like a CGI scary version of them yeah. and it still just looks like a farting green thing. But there's no racist caricature that they're based off of. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one point for the Celines. The twin dilemma has been concluded. It goes to Rose. Congratulations to Fenric Lamar. Uh, I'm going to weep quietly to myself. But before we part, we've got a bonus an inclusion from Big Finish. The first uh, release from the main range, episode one, The Sirens of Time. Temperon! Temperon! Holds its way through the oceans of time, serene, sublime. Who? Oh. Oh, so that's how things turned out for me. And for me, it seems. Any more of us? Just the three, it would appear. Well... Oh, we must be thankful for small mercies, mustn't we? So The Sirens of Time was a four-parter where each part is kind of its own separate story. It's a multi-doctor with five, six, and seven. In each of the first three parts, the doctors find themselves in these separate dilemmas. Seven is on this planet with quicksand, and there's a, a war criminal, and it's confusing. And then the second part is five, and he is on a German submarine during World War One, And then the third part is six. Where, where the hell? Oh, he was on like a, a he was on a space liner or something. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I want to say about this episode is it's confusing as hell. Yeah. Uh, so the, I love Big Finish. Uh, Fenric loves Big Finish. I love Big Finish. Please don't sue us, Big Finish. <laughs> You know, it's funny, I looked back at some of the reviews that came out when it was released, and a lot of them really praised the production quality. And I think you know we're really pampered now by just how good Big Finish has gotten. But listening to it, I thought that a lot of the production quality and the acting felt very amateurish compared to where they're at now. And I thought that stood out most startlingly in the Seventh Doctor story. Uh, yeah, Sylvester, I know he's kind of hit this mature phase where he is much more interested in his character's whispers. And for the first three minutes of his story, he's just whispering. And he's whispering hard. And it's one thing that Big Finish is really great at is establishing atmosphere. Like they create these great planets. You feel like you're part of this real world and there's just none of that here. And so right off the beginning, you're like, where is he and why is he whispering? And who's this girl that's in this quicksand? It really didn't feel like a Big Finish. It felt like something that Big Finish so rarely feels like, which is a deliberate imitation of a classic episode and an unsuccessful attempt at recreating a classic episode. It also really bothered me that it takes like an hour and 45 minutes before you find out who the sirens of time are. You meet like seven different adversaries and you're always like, oh, I bet this guy's the siren of time. Nope. That's actually something I specifically wrote down is that Big Finish does that a lot and often to great success, they leave you in the dark for a long time. And this one leaves you in the dark for a very long time for a very small payoff that's still kind of ambiguous ultimately. And I 
I thought, yeah, the Sirens of Time in particular, I did not care at all by the time they finally said who they were. If we want to say things that are positive. Which I would like to. (laughs) uh, There's one thing that Big Finish is very good at is pulling off some some good twists that have all the stuff there for you to figure it out, but it just passed you by. So there's a character who, well, there's actually three characters, these girls, and one's name is Ellie, and one's name is Helen, and one's name is Elena. As they're running around with their respective doctors, you don't realize, or at least I didn't realize, it's the same person. So I found the the twist coming that she was. I won't go into spoilers, but I guess I, I guess I guess <laughs> I, I guess have. you just did. <laughs> I guess I have. Uh, so she's an evil bitch, and she's you know they're all the same person, and that managed to pass me by. So I enjoyed that. Both Peter Davison and Colin Baker felt like they really sort of stepped back into their old shoes quite readily. Peter Davison's segment as a whole, I enjoyed. I thought the the characterization of uh, Captain Schweiss, Schweiss? I can't remember his Something name. Something German. The the submarine commander. Uh, I liked him. I would actually say that is one of the better five big Finnish stories. If you had an ending and was just a half hour story. What is your name? I'm the doctor. Doctor? That's a profession, not a name. It's all I have. The best story was definitely Fives, but probably the flat-out most enjoyable part of it to me was the beginning of the fourth part, where we, for the first time, get the three doctors together, and we just get a bit of that multi-doctor fun. It gets rather convoluted towards the second half of the fourth part, as we have the Knights of the Whatever and the Sirens of Time. and Alicia. Thank you very much. And it all kind of collides in a series of twists. But before we get to that, we just have a few nice scenes of good banter between the three doctors. I always like to have some doctors together. I'm a big fan of multi-doctor stories. There's a good line where, I guess this is the beginning of Six's story, where he says, one of the, the guys says to the android, he says, like, you're a highly sophisticated android with a perfect record. I trust you to fly me naked through a cheese grater. That's a good line. <laughs> I don't remember the exact line, but there was a really good Six line. Um... Yes. <laughs> it I don't want to I don't want to just paraphrase it, but it was yeah, I'm I'm just not going to bother. Okay. <laughs> uh one thing you can tell is that they're they're trying to take full advantage of the medium in this episode. They're saying, you know, Doctor Who for years has been bound by the budgets and we have a chance to make this big episode, this big multi-doctor special, and we're going to do a U-boat, a spaceship, the multiple alien races. And they tell a really, really big story. Uh, a consequence of that is it, it ends up being a bit cluttered. It also kind of shows off their ideas that they want to do interesting concepts with Doctor Who episodes. So like this was the first one where each part was kind of its own story, but built up to a whole, which ended up becoming almost a mainstay of Big Finish. I think uh, right off the bat, they show that they can write for the doctors. Five feels like five, six feels like six. I would say seven doesn't quite feel like seven, but maybe that's just because of kind of a weird cluster of Sylvester acting weird and his story being very vague. That is a combination of things. I think he wasn't fully back in the role. The dialogue isn't 
quite 100% there for him, but I think what is most affecting it is the, the actual story. His doctor is just searching the whole time. You know, those aren't the moments where the seventh doctor defines himself. The seventh doctor is defined by being the chess master, and when his character is lost the whole time, he doesn't have the opportunity to really feel like the seventh doctor. Honestly, if I could say what the most positive thing about the story is, it's the fact that the actors are there. This was at a time where the show had been off for many years, and there was no way of getting Doctor Who without it being through novels, and audios were a way where suddenly you could have the Doctor back, where he wasn't just this voice in your head when you're reading a book, but the actors were there. And so, although it's not a great start to Big Finish, it's a start. So let me ask you, Edward. Okay. Now with the question being Rose, an unearthly child, and the sirens of time, are you sticking with an unearthly child? (laughs) Do we have to flip a coin again? (laughs) No. You must decide. My answer is fuck you. (laughs) I'm kind of surprised you're not going with the sirens of time. For being better than an unearthly child? And Rose. For being better... Wait, what? No. You love the Sirens of Time. If, if I had to rank them, I would I would go Rose, Unearthly Child, and then Sirens of Time. Because uh, Sirens of Time, I think, has basic production issues and issues with the writing uh, that make it either difficult to follow or overly convoluted to the point where like it's difficult to become invested in the story. And you can't say that about uh, an unearthly child. So that's that's big big points taken away for me. I agree. Boo to the Sirens of Time. Sorry. (laughs) Here's a few tidbits and pieces of trivia about Sirens of Time. Mark Gatiss, who would later go on to write for the television show, plays three roles in Sirens of Time. Knight, Captain, and a different Captain. (laughs) (laughs) And also would go on to appear in uh, New Who as Matt Lazarus in the Lazarus Project. Dr. Lazarus. Lazarus. Who knows what his first name is. Research a little little shoddy on this one, folks. Crab Monster. (laughs) Crab Monster. The overall title was inspired by a Kurt Vonnegut novel named Sirens of Titan, which uh, features a Martian invasion with themes of free will. Maggie Stables, who would go on to play Evelyn Smythe, makes her big finish debut here, as does Nicholas Briggs. So while Sirens of Time was the first big finish Doctor Who audio, The first Doctor Who audio was released in 1976, starring Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen, titled Doctor Who and the Pescadons. It was released on an LP. Oh, man, I want to own that. (laughs) Where do you get that? I have no idea, but there were a number of other releases throughout uh, the 80s and 90s, including two releases in the early to mid-90s, starring John Pertwee, Elizabeth Sladen, and Nicholas Courtney which were called The Paradise of Death and The Ghosts of Endspace. Wait, does The Ghosts of Endspace star Elizabeth Slayton? Yeah. He hadn't gone to Endspace yet. I don't, I don't know, man. He doesn't go to Endspace. I, I, I know, I didn't hear the audios. Because that, um, that was a Fourth Doctor thing. Yeah, but the Fourth Doctor goes to Endspace. But he's star the Third Doctor. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I haven't heard him. The third Doctor definitely hasn't gone down in space. John- what the fuck? I didn't make him. Well, thank you for tuning in. This is uh, the end of The Twin Dilemma for permanently. <laughs> <laughs> we had a great run. Yeah, well, it's the fun's over now, kids. Go home. We had a great one. <laughs> Rose comes out on top this week, beating an unearthly child, proving itself the better beginning. 
uh, also beating Sirens of Time unofficially. I'm Fenric Lamar. And I'm Edward Grove. And we are both here to thank you for listening and hope that you tune in next time to hear more nerdy, stupid, waste-of-time comparisons between episodes of fictional adventures between fictional characters. But they're pretty great adventures, aren't they? They're the best. Tune in next time where we discuss gods and monsters. Small finish. We love dumb shit.